Good evening and welcome to Tiski Sour. Our main story this evening is the horrific bombardment of Gaza by Israel. It's a topic which is covered pretty badly by most of our mainstream media. So we're going to try and have a more sensitive and realistic discussion of what is currently going on in Palestine. I'm going to speak to two brilliant guests um, to fill us in on the situation there. Um, I'm also joined tonight by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing, Ash? I'm all right, man. I was just missing you. Had to wait all the way to Wednesday to see you. Tried to cancel <laughs> me, but I could not be cancelled. I did not try to cancel you. It was, it was a, it was a simple, it was a simple shift. Um, me and Ash are going to be talking about some of the ridiculous ways um, that the Israeli bombardment of Gaza and the generalised settler colonial um, occupation of Palestine is presented in the Western press and how it has actually been called out very, very effectively twice recently live on air. In the second half of the show, we have some Labour stories for you. Keir Starmer's poor ratings, worse than Corbyn. First story. Gaza continues to suffer its most brutal Israeli bombardment since the war in 2014. It has so far left 53 Palestinians dead, including 13 children. Now, Israel claimed the airstrikes are in response to rockets from Hamas, which so far have killed six people in Israel. Now, the violence, while horrific for all involved, is often misleadingly reported in the West as a fair fight between two sides. That overlooks the fact that one side is an occupier and the other is the occupied. It also ignores that while Hamas's rockets rarely hit their targets, the airstrikes of the IDF do. Meanwhile, Israeli bombs topple entire tower blocks. Residents had been warned to evacuate that block before the bomb hit. Obviously, that warning will have saved lives. It won't bring back anyone's homes. The Times of Israel have reported that Hamas have sought to negotiate a ceasefire, an end to the bombardments and the rockets. However, Israel has made clear they have no intention of agreeing to one. Benny Gantz, who's Israel's defense minister, spoke earlier today and said the army will continue to attack to bring a total long-term quiet. Only when we reach that goal will we, will we be able to speak about a truce. Now, these are really, really chilling words, and it's consistent with what has been Israel's strategy for a long term, which is essentially to maintain their own security by periodically bombarding any sites of resistance. It's a strategy which has been grimly labelled mowing the grass, highlighting the assumption that this will, I mean, presumably, they're assuming it will be done repeatedly, as we see with these periodic wars, these periodic bombardments of Gaza. Now, the bombardment of Gaza follows the storming of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Sheikh Jarrah evictions, and a police crackdown on Palestinians assembling in Jerusalem, all issues we talked about on Monday's show. And this convergence of repression has now sparked widespread protest and unrest among Palestinian citizens of Israel. Now, to talk about that wider context, the uprising we're beginning to see in the region, I'm delighted to be joined by Raya Alsana, a Palestinian researcher and activist based in Haifa. Could I start by asking you what, what the situation is like in Israel at the moment? Obviously, the, the bombing of Gaza is, is an escalation of the repression against Palestinians. There are many Palestinian citizens in Israel, and I understand, unsurprisingly, this is leading to widespread protest, widespread unrest across the region? 
Yes, well, I guess it's kind of important to go to put the background a little bit, um, and I guess maybe just a little bit of note on terminology that when we're talking about the attacks on Gaza and what's happening in Gaza, I think it's important to talk about it in the context of an Israeli settler colonial project that has been going on for over seven decades, and Palestinians are resisting. Um, they're resisting in Gaza, they're resisting in Jerusalem, and they're resisting in Palestine 48. And we saw today also Palestinian refugees in the diaspora coming coming out. And I think Palestinians are resisting the myriad of policies that are inflicted upon us by the settler colonial regime, from expulsion in Sheikh Jarrah that hits very hard and deep for every Palestinian who has a history, has a story with the question of expul- of, exp- of expulsion. It is the attack on Al-Aqsa Mosque as a place of worship, but also a very important political, it has a very important political significance and cultural um, and cultural uh, significance. Palestinians in 48 have been marginalized for decades, um, really aggressive Israeli state policies of, of bringing them with, into the orbit of the Israeli state, so attacking all of our cultural spaces, political organizing, but at the same time, impoverishment, uh, violence by the police, um, in the past few um, in the past few years, there have been massive increase of violence within the Palestinian community that is basically stemming from the structural violence that the broader structural violence that we live um, that we live in. Um, the Israeli state pursues the policies of impoverishment of Palestinian communities um, in Palestine. 48, 48, it has allowed the proliferation uh, and presence of weapons um, in the com- in the community. So it has facilitated. Um, the community's social fragmentation and, polit- and political fragmentation for its own political uh, for its own political ends, um, and I think what's important about what's happening today is the Palestinians regaining the sense of the collective, um, of each experiencing their life in a very different way because that's what the settler colonial project is about. It's about fragmenting the Palestinian people uh, politically, socially, um, and politically and socially. And when you fragment a people. Socially, you try to disconnect them from each other, um, and that's what Israel has been pursuing for over for over seven seven decades. And I think what we see today is Palestinians really, uh, obviously, clear, clearly saying that those policies have absolutely failed. No matter what are the uh, the grievances that each kind of section of the Palestinian people faces, be it the Palestinians in the West Bank against the PA, be it in 48 against kind of the state and police violence, be it in Gaza when it's bombarded and, 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 and people are being uh, killed en masse there, be it the attacks on Al-Aqsa and Jerusalem, those manifest themselves in a different way. But at the moment, Palestinians are saying that your project to fragment us as a people and to weaken our collective political uh, political will has absolutely failed. So people are coming together, uh, ignited what was, was happening in Sheikh Jarrah um, and, and Jerusalem, but actually the, there's a lot here uh, and the framing is much bigger of what people are struggling um, are struggling around. So in Palestine 48, um, there's about 30 demos happening every day. Many of them are in come in direct clashes with the Israeli, um, with the Israeli uh, apparatus. Um, a uh, huge amount of people being arrested, but also a very impressive sense of, of collective solidarity and collective work with teams of lawyers coming together to defend people, uh, with communities defending um, defending each other 
um, and so on. And the target is very clear. It is the Israeli state and its institutions and it's the Israeli police that repress Palestinians on a regular um, on a regular basis. And you see everybody on the streets. You see young, you see old, you see queer, you see women, um, you see people that you know and many people that you don't um, that you don't know. And they are time and time again uh, coming out on the street. And every time they come on the street, they face uh, the repression of the Israeli state um, of state apparatus. Israel has declared a state of emergency in Lid. Raya, you've, you've mentioned the repression which is coming from the police. What, what specifically does a state of emergency mean in this context, if, if that's been declared? Well, a state of emergency means a curfew. For uh, those who don't know, Palestinians um, in Palestine 48 lived under Israeli military curfew from 1948 until 1966. This is the first time that a military curfew is being declared since then uh, on a city uh, within Palestine, within Palestine 48. What this has also meant is because this, the, the state, the Israeli, uh, uh, Israel has declared its inability to control, to control the city uh, because of the magnitude of resistance in, in that, um, in that city. Um, it has called upon uh, military services, uh, military arm, the military to come uh, some military units to come from the West Bank and to enter into the city. So a complete lockdown and a state of emergency also gives those forces um, the ability to go into homes, the ability to arrest. Um, you know, it's kind of a military, it's, it's become a military state where you have the military within your own state uh, con conducting, your, uh, conducting your agenda on the street. So it's going to be very tough for people uh, in Lid. Um, Lid witnessed also the first martyr um, uh, who was shot by a settler. Um, and I think at the moment it's important to understand that Palestinian 48 are, are not only resisting the Israeli state police and its security, um, its security services, but also heavily armed settlers that are roaming the streets looking for, for Palestinians to beat, to, be, to beat them up, to beat them up. At the moment in, in Lid, there's hundreds of settlers um, going around, beating people, they actually uh, entered uh, the place where mourners were mourning the martyr uh, who was killed and was shooting uh, was shooting in the area. At the moment, in the street, uh, people in Lid are calling for the defense of the main of the main Lid mosque because it, because it's being under uh, because it's being under attack. So they're not only facing kind of state institutions, but actually you're coming to, you know, it, it's becoming evidently clear how the whole of the Israeli society is a militarized society. So either whether you're in uniform or out of your of uniform, you are uh, a military agent at the end of the day. And that's what Palestinians are facing. Mm. I should probably clarify for our audience, by, by Palestine 48, you mean all of Palestine within the 1948 borders of, of Israel. So what, what's normally called Israel. On the, the topic of, of these bombardments, where do you see this going? I have no, um, no doubt that Israel is uh, trying to inflict the most harm on the people of Gaza. And um, there have been many, many martyrs. Gaza has witnessed many, um, you know, Gaza has been under siege since 2007. Life in Gaza is, uh, <laughs> you know, is, is horrendous um, for, many, for many people living in Gaza. They've witnessed many, many wars um, that all of us can can remember. Uh, well, not even, um, and it it is very much um, it, it's on the table. It's a card on the table. But I think it's important to remember and to acknowledge 
that the context at the moment is very different than 2014. The context at the moment is that Israel is resisting Palestinians everywhere. Um, it is the whole of Palestine 48 is engulfed. The context at the moment is that Gaza is not the only place that is being attacked and being bombarded. And it's not the only, it's not only the people of Gaza that are enduring, uh, enduring uh, that violence this time. Uh, there's a movement, there's a move, people are moving in Jerusalem, people are moving all over. Um, and I think the kind of, the more, the stronger those movements become, it is our way to protect, uh, to protect Gaza. That is the only way to protect Gaza from, from this, from this side, from, from this end of where we, where am I, where I'm sitting. It's the only way. It's the only way to do that. We have to keep going forward. We have to keep resisting. We have to keep building. Um, and Israel has to face us everywhere. We can't leave Gaza alone. And I think this context changes changes the game a little bit. Although, of course, Israel is a murderous, is a murderous military uh, state, a uh, settler colonial state that has the ability to inflict a huge amount of harm um, on Palestinians and Gaza and, and elsewhere. Um, and it has to be. Uh, a collective effort to make that to make sure that that doesn't um, that that doesn't that doesn't happen, and there has to be a role for the international community as well in making sure that doesn't that doesn't ha happen. There has to be a way of putting much more pressure, international or global pressure, uh, on uh, on Israel, um, and there's a role for the international community to play here for sure. But I think it's important also to recognize the the different local contexts, um, and I think it's important to also recognize. And remember that we are at the moment in a region engulfed by counter-revolutionary processes. And it's also important to remember the centrality of Palestine um, for movements um, uh, and people in the region. And so the car, you know, it's not very clear whether it's going to be a straightforward 2014-2008 scenario. I think the context is very different and it can be different if we act to make it different. Rayal Sana, thank you so much for, for your time and, and speaking to us this evening. I can see lots of people sending their solidarity in the comments. We really do appreciate it. Israel's occupation of the West Bank, the deadly airstrikes it rains on Gaza and the expulsion of Palestinians from their homes are not just the wrongdoings of one side in an equal conflict. They are rather the ongoing practices of settler colonialism. This is not a dispute, it's an occupation. So why do Western media outlets report on the aggressions of the Israeli government as if they are responses to provocations on the part of the people they occupy? There's a simple answer. It's the ideology of imperialism. But it's increasingly being called out. This was the Palestinian ambassador speaking to Newsnight's Emily Maitlis after 20 Palestinians, including nine children, were killed in Israeli airstrikes on Monday in Gaza. The Israelis think that Hamas are a radical terror group and that Palestinian officials use these holy times to incite violence. Was Hamas right to respond with rocket fire? This isn't about Hamas. Hamas was not involved. There were tens of they thousands. Were when they fired rockets. Hamas did not decide to evict people from their homes inside the occupied city of Jerusalem. 
East Jerusalem is occupied not according to my law only, but according to your law, according to the UK position, according to the United Nations. An occupation has to be temporary and it has to respect the rules that govern occupation. Israel has made mockery of these uh, rules, particularly the issue of population transfers, ethnic cleansing, uh, 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 apartheid. I'm sure you have read the Human Rights Report. Those people have researched Israeli policies so over the last two years. Ask the esp- experts, we not Netanyahu. Not the, Netanyahu is flaming. Of the settlements, but let's just try and understand this. Because Dory Gold, the former Israeli ambassador to the UN, has told us it was pre-planned by Hamas, the march had nothing to do with it, you wanted to make Israel look bad. Do you condemn the rocket attacks by Hamas? I condemn and I, I condemn Israeli aggression. I mourn for the 20 people who were murdered in Gaza only tonight. Nine of them are children. I am so sad to see the hundreds of my people you know, being... Sir, I'm not asking being, about Israeli be, no, no, aggression. No, no, I will no, do no, that in a moment. No, 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 I'm asking you about I, Hamas's I am, aggression I am, tonight. I am not aware of any Israeli who has been killed. And you ask me a question about violence and condemnation. Who should be condemned, Emily? Who should be condemned? Did you see the images of the nine children being dissipated in Gaza tonight? Who should be condemned? And then the UK foreign secretary is quick to condemn Hamas and never to condemn the Israeli atrocities on a daily basis. We are sick and tired of the double standards okay. and we have to call it right this who, time. Who, call a spade standards? a is spade. It, is it the Western uh, governments? Is it? You heard the statement from Dominic Raab today. He condemned the firing of rockets. What is your response to the UK government? Always the story begins when Palestinian reaction happens. As if it started with Hamas. Look at your question. Your question is about Hamas, rockets, rockets. But that's because it, I'm talking to you. No, 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 Emily, no, Emily, no, Emily. I have done, I have done man, many interviews. It starts with the Palestinian reaction, with the symptom of the illness. It never visits the illness. The illness is that this state, Israel, the occupying state, has been uh, applying draconian measures against our people in every sense. Depriving them the right to move, the right to own their property, the right to work, the right to uh, vote in, in, a, in a free elections, including in East Jerusalem, oh. every right you can imagine, and not only by, by the way, inside the occupied territories, but even inside Israel itself. There is a Knesset law that has deprived our people inside Israel their basic rights of having self-determination. This whole system has been built endemic in it is the racism endemic in it is the vulgar ultra-nationalism. That's why you get people trying to defend their dignity. I think the key line there was really, really, really impressive response there to Emily Maitlis. I mean, really, really calm, composed, under pressure. And I think what he said there that really struck with me is this idea, he said, it's always the story begins with the Palestinian reaction, the symptom of the illness. So he said, why are you ask, Why are you beginning this com- conversation with rockets from Gaza when that completely just ignores the context that's, that's, that's happening here, which is this is a, a place which has been under siege. These are people defending themselves. I want to get up a, a tweet from Omar Badar, which I think, I mean, just really summarized this really, really well. It made a lot of sense to me, made, made a lot of sense of what we're, what we're witnessing right now to me. So he says, one, status quo, occupation apartheid is violence against Palestinians. Two, then Israel escalates through evictions, beatings, shootings. Three, then some Palestinians respond with violence. And then four, then Israel responds with massacres. If you start reporting at number three, you're misleading your audience. And clearly that's that's where that interview was starting with. That interview was starting with, were Hamas justified in sending rockets? It's ignored 
the status quo, which is occupation and apartheid, and it's ignored the Israeli escalations which preceded those rockets being fired. But still, Western media always starts with the rockets. So that makes it seem like, oh, it's just these two sides. It's this cycle of violence. Ash, I want to get your thoughts on this because, I mean, as Emily Maitlis said there, she sort of suggested, look, I'm going to now give some tough questions to the Israeli ambassador. I actually watched the show. She ends up, she, I mean, she does ask some tough questions, but none of them go into the issue of apartheid or occupation. They're all about, oh, maybe you're not responsible enough with your power. Maybe you're too trigger happy. You know, none of them were really looking at the disease, you know, which is occupation and which is apartheid. And how do you think the media get away with it? Why do they do it? Why do they frame this as a as an equal battle between two sides? In order to address this question, one of the things that you've got to do is look at the ideology which is underpinning this entire discussion. Now, you correctly uh, called it imperialism, but another word that you could give it is it is essentially a liberal outlook on international relations. So you can acknowledge that something is a conflict. You can even sometimes acknowledge that something is an asymmetric conflict where one side has got access to uh, you know, greater weaponry and technology than the other side. But what you cannot do and what you cannot get your own head around is the way in which even um, you know, liberal states are complicit and active parts in ethnic cleansing and settler colonialism. Because that is the narrative and the historical frame which makes all of this make sense, which makes that number one, day-to-day uh, -day apartheid and dispos dispossession, number two, escalation of aggression, number three, uh, response of violence, number four, response of massacres. That is the frame which makes all of those things make sense. And liberal media, and when I'm saying liberal, I'm not talking here in terms of, you know, social democratic or what do you think about wealth redistribution? I'm talking about, you know, in some ways, that much looser ideological uh, universe. Liberal media cannot make sense of this. It will not make sense of this because then you have to ask the question of why. What was Britain's involvement in this? What was America's involvement in this? And how much do we put into maintaining a system of slow and then sometimes accelerated ethnic cleansing uh, where the day-to-day -day status quo of that system is apartheid? We do not have a media which is capable of addressing those questions. And as such, the humanity of Palestinians, and when I say humanity, I'm not just talking simply in terms of personhood. I'm talking humanity, the culture, the human rights, the right to self-defense, to resistance and self-determination. All of these things get pulled through what is essentially a war on terror frame. So it presumes that these people, uh, most of whom are Muslim, are essentially terrorist or terrorist adjacent. It delegitimizes acts of lawful resistance and lawful self-defense against an occupying uh, and, and out of control military force um, and presents these things as, as terrorist and racialized threats which have got a particular um, salience within an ecology of images within a British and an American context. And so that's why you see there is this uphill battle when there are Palestinians making media interventions. Now, the Palestinian ambassador in Newsnight made a very forthright and a very compelling and a very convincing one. What's important, I think, is for all of us with what little comparative platform we have, you know, compared to 
Emily Maitlis or Newsnight is to talk about that framing, which makes sense of what's going on and not fall into this delusion that what we're seeing is an equal sided conflict in which both sides are equally to blame. And if everyone just, you know, sat down, have a cup of tea, it would all be solved. No. You see these really banal tweets. I saw one today. I I'm pretty sure it's David Aronovich um, at the Times, and he was saying, you know, both the Israeli governments and Hamas, they're not working in the interests of their citizens. They're not the ones who are going to get bombed. You know, it's a bit, and it's just this sort of super banal, oh, anti, that the leaders are all irrational and it's this cycle of violence. And it just, as you say, Ash, it doesn't make sense of what's going on because you're not looking at the real context. You're not looking at the real explanation. Um, that was one example of a Palestinian really impressively calling out a host who was, I suppose, giving this misleading framing of, of what's currently going on in Palestine. Um, another one is, or another clip that this one really went viral, was from Mohammed El-Kurd, a journalist whose family are at threat of expulsion from their homes in Sheikh Jarrah. He is speaking to CNN. Do you support the protests, uh, the violent protests that have erupted in solidarity with you and, and, and other families in your position right now? Do you support um, the violent dispossession of me and my family? I'm just asking if you support the protests that are taking place in support of, of, of your family. I support I support popular um, protests taking place against ethnic cleansing, yes. Thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. Mohammed Al-Kurd, thank you very much. Thank you. And that was such a powerful answer. Because, I mean, this whole idea, do you condemn the odd act of violence or, I mean, systematic violence, who, who, who knows? Do you, it's essentially saying, do you condemn resistance to apartheid, is essentially what, she's, what the question she's asking. And it is a ridiculous question, and it should be called out as a ridiculous question. If what's going on is settler colonialism and apartheid, then for us to just constantly moralise about the tactics used by the oppressed, it's, it's a distraction, essentially. This bias that you've just seen from these hosts is also reflected in policy. I mean, absolutely reflected in policy, in fact. This was UK Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab's response on Monday night after 20 Palestinians, including nine children, had been killed by airstrikes in Gaza. Raab tweeted, the UK condemns the firing of rockets at Jerusalem and locations within Israel. The ongoing violence in Jerusalem and Gaza must stop. We need an immediate de-escalation on all sides and end to targeting of civilian populations. So that is just so duplicitous. The UK condemns the firing of rockets at Jerusalem and locations within Israel. That, that's the only thing he tweeted. You know, there'd been 20 Palestinians killed. At that point in time, there'd been no Israeli killed. And he thinks that's a reasonable response. How more obvious could it be that you don't value Palestinian lives? Ash, I want to get your, your commentary on that tweet from Dominic Raab and that clip we just saw on, on CNN. Dealing with the Dominic Raab tweet first, there was a statement from an IDF spokesperson. And what it said was there is one address in Gaza. It is called Hamas. So if you want to talk about targeting of civilian populations, the entire nature of what's going on in Gaza, the fact that it is essentially an open air prison where most of the water isn't even drinkable, where there's, you know, incredible levels of deprivation and uh, unemployment. And that is what it is like during peacetime. Um, it is 
it is made that way. Uh, it is allowed to be that way because the West maintains and shares in this delusion that the entirety of Gaza must be considered a legitimate terrorist target. Now, that is not something which is legal under international law. There are rules in terms of armed conflict, in terms of distinction and proportionality. And even during so-called peacetime, even during times where there is not um, you know, the active bombardment of residential buildings, these rules of disproportionality and distinction um, are not respected. That's why it exists as an open air prison in the first place. So talking about the targeting of civilians, as if there is any equality between the firing of rockets, most of which are caught and destroyed by the Israeli Iron Dome uh, system, and what goes on in Gaza on a day-to-day -day basis is, is uh, at best delusional and at worst actively complicit in racism, imperialism, and ethnic cleansing. And as for the CNN clip, again, another wonderfully strong intervention, because it's a silly question. It's a fundamentally silly question, because what you never hear and what you never hear put to spokespeople for the IDF or, or to the Israeli government is, well, what would you consider a proportionate response be to the ethnic cleansing of your people? Because then we can get away from this discourse, and it is a nonsense discourse which treats all acts of violence the same. Of course, in an ideal world, we think that all acts of violence should be considered with equal moral weight and equal political meaning. But we do not live in that world, and we do not live in that world because there is an uneven distribution of violence in the world. So in the face of your oppression, your dispossession, your bombardment and your arrest and your obliteration as a culture, what do you think is a reasonable means by which to express dissent and to resist that ongoing process? Now, that is, of course, an open political question where people draw the line is different, but it is, in fact, a political question and not simply a moral one, which means that you can look at what's going on, not just in Gaza, um, but across the occupied territories and issue a blanket condemnation, which is in effect a blank check for the ongoing abuse of power and ethnic cleansing perpetrated by the Israeli state and settlers. I mean, we've just been talking about how it's how it's ridiculous to see all all violence as as the same, because one side here is being occupied and one side is is, is the occupier. In fact, though, most of the mainstream media and the big Western powers, they do the opposite. Basically, any violence by the occupier is legitimate and any violence by the occupied isn't. You know, so it's, it's completely through the looking glass. The best example of this was from this week. It was a response um, of Joe Biden's spokesperson on the Middle East to the airstrikes and the rockets we're, we're currently seeing. We're speaking of the principle of self-defense. Uh, we you know, certainly. I'm asking if you think that the principle of self-defense applies to the retaliatory the, the, the airstrikes that they're conducting in response. Matt, this to is a very fluid situation. I, I would hesitate to uh, comment on operations beyond, you know, the rocket fire that uh, is clearly targeting innocent civilians uh, in Israel. So I would hesitate to speak to specific operations um, that have just occurred. But the broader principle of self-defense is something um, we uh, uh, we stand by uh, on behalf of Israel yeah, but and every do you other think country. that a Israeli military response to the rockets coming in, it, it, that a, a military response to the rockets coming in is covered by this broader rubric of self-defense, right? Uh, Self-defense self often does uh, uh, authorize the use of force. This, 
Thank you, Matt. Uh, I want to ask you about East Jerusalem, but just talk about what you said about the principle of self-defense. Does that in any way apply to the Palestinians? Do they have a right to self-defense? Do Palestinians have a right to self-defense? Uh, I'm in broadly speaking, Saeed, uh, we believe in the concept of self-defense. We believe it applies uh, to any state. I don't think okay. that uh, I, I, I certainly wouldn't want uh, my words to be construed. No, as. I understand. I, I want to ask you, I don't want to harp on this either, but, you know, the Israelis killed 13 people just now, you know, including maybe five or six children. Do you condemn that? Do you condemn the killing of children? Saeed. Uh, I, I'm asking, do you condemn the killing of Palestinian children? Obviously, uh, and these reports are just emerging, uh, and I understand, I was just speaking to the team, I understand we don't have independent confirmation of facts on the ground yet, so I'm very hesitant uh, to get into reports that are just emerging. Uh, obviously, the deaths of civilians, uh, be they Israeli or Palestinians, are something we would take very seriously. Okay. You're going to know as soon as I read what your answer was that there's a big problem with it. You said, well... Not a problem, it just doesn't answer the question. We believe that it, meaning the right to self-defense, applies to any state. Well, you see the problem, right? Yes? Do you want to... Do you regard Palestine as a state? I wasn't referring... Do you think that... Do you... Do you, but I, you, but you I, don't but in the context of the ICC and the UN. I, so are you I, saying that you do not... If it applies to any state, are you saying that Palestinians don't have a right to self-defense? I, I was making a broader point not attached to uh, Israel or Palestinians in that case. So they do have a right to self-defense. Matt, I'm I'm not I'm I'm not, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not in a position to to debate the legalities uh, right. from up here. What our message is one of de-escalation. That was just disgusting to watch. Actually, essentially, he's saying when Israel bombs Gaza, when Israel bombs Palestinians, that's self-defense. States have a right to self-defense if they feel like they're at risk from rockets which are being fired. Then they have a right to respond. You know, essentially, however they want. If they bomb tower blocks, so be it. That's, that's, that's the right to self-defense. He's saying, but the Palestinians, you see, they don't have a state, so they don't have the right to self-defense. All they have is terrorism. And so you can see this way whereby he has basically automatically legitimized the violence of the oppressor and automatically delegitimized the violence of the impressed. That's why I say it's through the looking glass. It is you know, the, the precise opposite of what any moral compass should tell you in this situation. You, as Ash says, you can have legitimate debates about how oppression should be resisted, right? So there will be people that say, even even if um, a people are colonized and oppressed, um, I'm not comfortable with them using violence. You know, it's a fine position. But to say the oppressor can use violence, the oppressed cannot, and to almost have these sort of rules, which means that's by definition the case, it's, I mean, it's, it's just phenomenally disgusting, really. Ash, I, I want to bring you in on this because... You know, this isn't the Trump administration. This is the Biden administration. And we know that, you know, on, on certain issues when it comes to, you know, fiscal policy, for example, they have been fairly progressive and, and Biden is seen to be a president who does, um, you know, listen to the left. But when it comes to foreign policy and policy on things like Palestine, it's hard to imagine a response that's more reactionary than that, really, isn't it? When it comes to America thinking that the uh, security and security interests in, of Israel are in line with American geopolitical interests, this is, of course, something which extends for a much longer durée uh, than the appearance of Trump. And it is truly, I think, an issue of bipartisan agreement. Um, this is sometimes quite 
crudely, I think, understood as the power of the Israel lobby. But it's actually something which I think, you know, you can understand through the power of America in the region of the Middle East and seeing Israel as a vehicle for the advancement of American and more generally Western interests in the region. And so that's why I think you do not have a serious tilt leftwards uh, from Joe Biden or his spokesperson, although you may see perhaps uh, much less flagrant support for the expansion and the activities of Netanyahu, and you might have a bit more uh, considered or muted condemnation than you certainly would have had under Trump. But when it comes to the fundamentals about the recognition of a Palestinian state, the the recognition of a Palestinian state and people's right to self-determination, to resistance, to self-defense, you are not going to see something which is all that different from what a Republican president or indeed what President Trump would say. I mean, in terms of people who pose as being progressive but are actually very reactionary when it comes to issues like this, I've just got one more example for you. This is Wes Streeting, just been promoted to the shadow cabinet, it's worth noting. He tweeted last night, there can be no justification for the Hamas rockets raining down on Israel tonight. Friends of mine are cowering in shelters with their children. And he goes on, don't even bother with what about tweets. I wrote to the foreign secretary today about the loss of life in Gaza and related issues. I deplore those rocket attacks too. Some might treat this conflict like cheering on a football team. I don't. Try being consistent yourselves. Now, I mean, the first tweet there is what Ash was saying. He's flattening violence to just completely decontextualize it. Violence when you are resisting occupation and apartheid is the same as violence when you are trying to enforce occupation and apartheid, according to Wes Streeting in that tweet. And secondly, that second one, to say, if you see a difference between you know, fighting apartheid and enforcing apartheid, that's essentially the same as supporting a football team. You know, that he is willing to belittle this issue to such an extent that he thinks that anyone who seriously cares about apartheid and colonialism and occupation is just doing this because it's like a game to them. I'm sorry, West Street, but this isn't a game. Right. And it's not a game to the people who care about it. The people who care about it care about it because they have a moral conscience and they hate to see overwhelming force used to oppress a people for over 50 years while they kill children in airstrikes. And if you can't, you know, empathize with that, if you can't relate to that, if you think that must be cynical, then the problem is with your moral compass, not with anyone else's. It's it makes my skin crawl, to be frank. Ash, I, I want you to I want you to interject. I want you to take over on the West Streeting issue from me. I mean, you know what? If what West Streeting said is so intellectually derelict, I'm not going to respond to it directly because it is so farcical. I'm sorry. But what I do want to speak to is perhaps a wider audience which is wrestling with this political question about the nature of resistance. Is violence ever justified? And so on and so forth. Of course, people are going to have different points of view on this. And one of the things that I would like to draw attention to is something that Arundhati Roy wrote, which is that you can only go on hunger strike if you're not already hungry. And so certain acts of symbolic nonviolence, where what you do is you display your vulnerability to the world. Well, you need an audience, number one. And number two, you already need a recognition of your humanity. So if you don't have these things, what use is the spectacle of nonviolence in the face 
of violence. You might think that it means that you do have a certain moral integrity and it's always there, but in terms of effectiveness, in terms of survival, in terms of being able to actively resist your own ethnic cleansing and your own cultural obliteration and your own oppression by an apartheid system, well, no, it, it doesn't also do those things. And this is something which uh, the left in this country, and when I'm talking about the left, I'm not just talking about the so-called hard left. I'm also talking about the social democratic left, the soft left. This was something which they understood perfectly well when it came to the struggle against uh, South African apartheid. Now, Nelson Mandela is often remembered as akin to Gandhi. You know, he kind of fits in the same frame. Of course, he was leader of the armed wing of the ANC for quite some time. And during this time period, there was a sense that in order to support resistance of South African apartheid, there was a range of activities which were appropriate for an international community standing in solidarity, for instance, uh, a boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, which was advanced by many people here in the UK. And there was also a sense that in the face of the daily brutality of apartheid, that you couldn't apply the same moral compass as you would for a liberal democracy, which has some recognition of civil rights, democratic rights and shared humanity, that you cannot apply the same moral standards in terms of resistance and political activity. And I think that whatever side you come down on, on this question of political violence, specifically with regards to Palestine, that is the frame of mind that you need to be in. You need to be thinking critically and you need to think about just what it is your demand for performative acts of nonviolence is really about. And is it fundamentally about trying to appease your own sense of having internalized this narrative about Palestinians as being war on terror adjacent, of being, you know, kind of inherently terroristic and having to demonstrate their own amenability to liberal values before you recognize their humanity. I think that's something that's worth thinking about for the left. And that's something which I think is much more worth commenting uh, on than, frankly, idiotic tweets by Wes Streeting. I apologise sincerely for subjecting you to Wes Streeting's tweets. I know you try very hard to avoid those in your daily life. It's been a bad week for Labour and Keir Starmer when it comes to election results and polls. In last week's local election, Labour lost 326 council seats, while the Conservatives gained 235. Labour also lost a considerable number of seats to the Greens. You can see they added 88 councillors um, to the number they already had. Now, the results were the worst showing for a leader of the opposition in their first round of local elections in over 40 years. So in those elections, the ones that just happened, Labour lost 7% of their councillors. Now, we've got the data from um, 1984 of the seats lost or gained by leaders of the opposition in the first local elections of their leadership. And no one has done this badly. Jeremy Corbyn lost seats in the first um, election as his leader of the opposition, which was historically quite poor. Keir Starmer, much poorer, much worse. Um, Ed Miliband increased Labour's councillors by 9% in his first set of council elections. As you can see, Tony Blair did quite well in 1995. So all of this shows us when it comes to electoral performances, Labour under Keir Starmer is looking historically bad. But what about Keir Starmer himself? 
Now, the argument you'll often hear from Labour's centrists is that Keir Starmer is actually fairly popular. Labour are just struggling because they have a tarnished brand. Unfortunately for Sir Keir, that claim is not borne out in polling data. And in the wake of last week's council results, his personal ratings have continued to go south. How do we know this? YouGov regularly ask voters the following question. Do you think Keir Starmer is doing well or badly as leader of the Labour Party? Now, in their latest survey from the 10th of May, just 17% said he was doing well, which is down nine points since April the 12th. In that same survey, 65% said he was doing badly, which is up a huge 15 points from April 12. That gives Starmer a net approval rating of minus 48, his worst ever with YouGov. Minus 48, that's pretty bad. Now, how does this compare with the historically unpopular, the unelectable, the disastrous Jeremy Corbyn? Well, if we compare like with like, so that's their ratings at the same point in their leadership, it turns out that Starmer comes out worse. So this is the ratings that Corbyn had in September 2016. Again, not very good. Um, 21% of people thought he was doing well. 61% of people thought he was doing badly. Um, not good. Those are bad ratings. They needed improving. Keir Starmer, though, it's worse. So only 17% of people think he's doing well at his job. 65% think he's doing badly. So this is the man who was elected to be leader of the Labour Party precisely because he would be better at the media, he'd be better at communicating to the public, he'd be more confident, competent and popular. And it turns out he's doing worse than Corbyn. And when it comes to public opinion, obviously Corbyn had some achievements to put to his name, even when he was you know, quite unpopular. He you know, brought new ideas back into the mainstream. What has Keir Starmer achieved other than people not really liking him? Now, Ash, I want to bring you in on this, because on one level, I'm quite impressed with Keir Starmer. And that's because I seriously didn't believe you could end up with ratings quite this bad without a systematic smear campaign <laughs> against you. Keir Starmer has done this all of his own accord. He didn't have any help in becoming this unpopular. It was just him. All of us were guilty of vastly overestimating Keir Starmer's competence because it was a creature of pure aesthetics. He was a man who came along, said, I am competent, and we all went, yeah, that sounds like the kind of thing a competent person would say. Um, it was something that was reinforced, of course, by his main cheerleaders, his team and lobby journalists. Everybody absolutely raced to fall over themselves, calling him forensic and, you know, just this image of professionalism and electability. And then the problem is that he turned out to be not particularly electable because people won't vote for him and not particularly professional because he keeps doing things badly. And so when that's your offer to people, and it's not really based on values, it's not really based on an attractive political culture, and it's certainly not based on a policy vision about how you're going to improve this country. Once those things melt away, what are you left with? You're left with somebody who looks a bit tetchy, who comes across like a deputy head teacher who's just lost control of the school assembly. And what's more, everybody can see it.
And that's the problem, I think, of having a Labour leadership which goes, we can win things, is when you don't. And when you don't, because I think there is this uh, historic material realignment in English politics and you don't have anything to speak to those chasms in terms of home ownership and values and concentrations of young voters then you just look like a stuffed suit you've got nothing for you so in a way yeah I'm impressed by how fast it's fallen apart for him I don't think that there's been any other Labour leader who's fallen so far not only in the public estimation so quickly but has also hemorrhaged the support that he was able to count on amongst Britain's commentariat and the sad thing for him is that he doesn't have this lively passionate grassroots movement to back him up because he spent the last year of his leadership going I'm embarrassed of you you're too woke you're too urban and those of you who voted for my predecessor are probably all anti-semites now that means that you don't have this really vibrant movement to ride into the rescue and do all the stuff uh, that you can't achieve through media interventions anymore. So what's he done? He's alienated his left flank, traipsing right after a bunch of votes who aren't ever going to come back and taking advice from Labour right-wingers who, the minute it's convenient to them, are going to throw him out a window. That's hardly forensic now, is it? It's hardly forensic. I have to say, I am just really, because, you know, Corbyn, by September 2016, he'd been completely dragged through the mud. You know, terrorist sympathiser, anti-Semite, hates Britain. All of these things have been printed about Jeremy Corbyn to create a level of hostility among the public towards him, right? And obviously, also, the first months of Corbyn were a mess, right? <laughs> His team was a mess. They didn't know what they were doing, right? So for, for Starmer to be doing even worse than that, when and you know we've talked about why the Corbyn campaign originally was a bit of a mess. It's because he never expected to be in power. He he was constantly subjected to attempts to overthrow him. Keir Starmer has had lots of things in his favour, right? He he had a big team of people who had done this before. You know Peter Mandelson he's brought in. He he knows how to lead a party. Got terrible politics, but he knows what he's doing. They're not completely new to all of this, and the press of gone really really lightly on them and they're doing even worse than Jeremy Corbyn if someone had said that in the leadership election you'd get called like a deluded ultra leftist to say to guess to assume that Keir Starmer would be less popular than Jeremy Corbyn I think people would say what the hell are you talking about you could say you know his politics aren't as exciting but he's clearly going to be more popular than Jeremy Corbyn at the same point in their leadership no um, it wasn't just this poll by YouGov either. Um, the first poll to be released after the local elections was by Redfield and Winton Strategies. Um, they say Keir Starmer's net approval rating stands at minus 7%, a six-point decrease from last week, and the lowest ever net approval rating for Starmer since he became leader of the Labour Party. Now, obviously, they use a slightly different method to YouGov or ask a slightly different question, which means um, that their approval ratings, while still low, are not as low as as YouGov had them for. I'm not sure the precise comparison with, with Corbyn there. I think that's a new company, so they probably didn't have them then. In that same poll, we can see the effect the local elections and the fallout from them had on voting intention. Um, so this is the latest from Redfield. Winton, the Conservatives are up five on 45%. Labour are down four on 30 
4%. This often happens after elections. People think, ah, the Conservatives are winners. Uh, maybe we should vote for them. The Labour Party, they're losers. Why would we vote for them? You'll, you'll remember, you know, after the 2017 general election, that's when Labour's polling was super, super high because people like, oh, actually, this party is serious. Other people like them will pile in. Well, I wonder if he'll be able to come back from these terrible ratings for a little bit more of a granular um, sense what people think about Keir Starmer, especially when compared to Boris Johnson. We can go to more details from Redfield and Winton. Um, so they asked voters or respondents, who do you think best embodies the following characteristics? And they included stands up for the interests of the United Kingdom, can build a strong economy, is a strong leader, can work with foreign leaders, understands the problems affecting the UK, represents change, has better foreign policy strategy, tells the truth, and cares about people like me. So there's lots of these, and you can see them all. There's only one in which Keir Starmer comes out ahead of Boris Johnson, and that's that he is in better good physical and mental health than Boris Johnson, according to the public. And you've got to remember, a year ago, Boris Johnson was taken into an intensive care unit with coronavirus. So to be in better physical and mental health than Boris Johnson isn't particularly um, hard. It's also not much of a political achievement, is it, to, to be in, in better health than your opponent. Ash, your final thoughts on this particular topic. Is there any way Keir can make a comeback? I mean, political turnarounds work when a politician is able to say, I wasn't being myself before, but now I am. Here is my real self. Now, the problem with Keir Starmer is that really since the time he's become an MP he hasn't really had a real self that you get a sense of or that you think he's abandoned so if you're trying to go and this is the real authentic me and all manifest in these values and these policies and this way of relating to the world around me um I don't think it works and I think the problem is is that he jettisoned having his own analysis of how the world works and what the Labour Party should do in favour of these completely empty aesthetic signifiers of electability and professionalism. And now those two things in tatters, I think he's got nothing left. So he might completely surprise me. He might reach down deep and find a real authentic self that was lurking there the whole time, all these policies that he really believes in and a cultural frame which holds it all together. But I just don't think he's got it in him. Um, final story. We're going to run through this super, super quick, but it is an important one. Even once we escape the COVID-19 pandemic, there are multiple urgent challenges facing our government in Westminster. That includes regional inequality, climate change, a social care crisis, and the list goes on. However, in the Queen's speech, which is a chance for the government to put forward their legislative agenda for the coming year, the most headline-grabbing announcement has aimed to solve a problem which doesn't exist. Yes, Boris Johnson's government has confirmed it will be legislating to make photo ID a requirement for voting, even though only six cases of fraud were recorded in 2019. Here's Matt Hancock defending the policy. There is some concern, and it's surely you would agree legitimate concern about some uh, groups in society uh, about not having the, the relevant uh, photo ID at, at the moment. I mean, that's surely going to disenfranchise people, won't it? I mean, look, the figures say 47% of black people don't have a driver's license compared to 26% of white people. I mean, there is a real danger, isn't there, that you could ultimately prevent sort of key constituents in society from 
from having their say? No, it's about fairness. It's about making sure that when people do something as important as voting, then they are who they say they are. Uh, and that uh, we piloted this, we've, we've looked at it uh, in great detail, we're committed uh, to making it happen. And I think, you know, people across this country want to know for sure that elections are fair. And this is just one measure to make the country a fairer place. But, uh, but apparently only six cases of voter fraud in the last election. Well, there's, there's, I, I think that's six cases too many. Uh, and I think that you'll find there's very, very strong support for the principle that our elections should be robust. It's just, but it's just one example of important changes uh, to improve the country, to make it fairer. Now, that argument is just so, so ridiculous. For one, this idea, oh, six is too many. Apply that to any other area of policy which the government writes. You know? <laughs> The, the austerity, which the British Medical Journal, journal said killed 120,000 people or led to 120,000 unnecessary deaths. Well, you know, it's six people, six, six examples of voter fraud is a real problem. 120,000 people who die unnecessary deaths because of austerity. Well, we were just cutting the deficit, you know, we're just balancing the books. The other part of that argument, which I think is, I mean, bizarre, well, it's not bizarre because I can see what he's doing. It's incredibly cynical. Is this idea, voting is very, very important. So we should make it hard. The conclusion should be the precise opposite. Voting is very, very important, which is why we should make it very, very easy. We should make sure there are no barriers to voting whatsoever. Because even in these proposals, they're saying it won't just be a passport or a driver's license. There might be other ID, which is acceptable. And also you will be able to apply to your local authority for a free you know, piece of ID. You know, so that they are trying to remove some of the barriers from it, I think only to make this acceptable so they can pass it through Parliament. But what you are creating undoubtedly and inevitably is a barrier to voting. And if you create a barrier to vote, that by definition makes it harder to vote, which means by definition, less people are going to vote. So it is, you know, you can look at the data about how this is disproportionately going to affect different sections of society, and we should, that's incredibly important. But the most obvious thing to say here, and the most irrefutable thing to say here, is this creates a barrier to voting. Why would you want to do that when there is no problem to begin with? There's obviously cynical motivations for it, but I also feel like the Tories are probably going to get away with it. I think it raises an interesting question, which is that if the Conservative Party or the new party of the working class, which is what a lot of the hot takes have been saying in the past week, then why are they pursuing a policy which will make it much more difficult for low-income voters to cast their vote? Hmm? It can't be that we've got this like really weird idea of working class, which is coded as older homeowner, and we've stopped thinking about working age people on actual low incomes, have we? And maybe that's that exact cohort of voters who Labour have been invisibilizing and traipsing after, um, you know, those older homeowner voters. Hmm? Um I just think that what this speaks to is the fundamental paranoia at the heart of the modern conservative project. Because on the one hand, they are absolutely riding high in the polls. They dominate the legislature, but they're looking at a generational cliff edge where they know they've lost the bulk of working age people and they cannot uh, attract the support of people who are actually on low incomes and don't have asset wealth to fall back on. And so that's why you see this measure which disenfranchises low-income people, disenfranchises first-time voters, and disenfranchises disproportionately people of colour 
as well. It's because they look at the shifting demographics in this country and they're scared. This isn't the bold swagger of a confident Boris Johnson who's, you know, striding around the red wall like a colossus. This is a deeply paranoid and afraid political project. Max Counter with £10. I don't support voter ID at all, but this may actually be an own goal for the government. The process of obtaining ID may actually discourage older voters who may be more inclined to vote Conservative. I think older voters are... I, I think they tend to be more organised because they tend to be less chaotic. For me, the, I think the barrier to voting here is going to be, I know, I, I probably lose stuff less as I get older, but, you know, especially when I was in my 20s, I just couldn't, you know, I'd lose my ID all the time. So it could easily be the case that, you know, in the two weeks before the election, I just lost it and forgot to replace it. That, that to me, is the barrier. It's more, it's more people with chaotic lives than, than anything else, which I think will, you know, benefit the Conservatives, which is why they're pushing this through. Let's wrap up there ash it's been a pleasure to be joined by you on a wednesday as a change you'll be back on monday i trust oh thank you for having me back you know you you exiled me from tisky but i've won a place in your good graces again i've come crawling back for more with my tail in between my legs you've been watching tisky sour on navarra media good night this broadcast is brought to you by navarra media go to navaramedia.com support